Welcome to Cinema Talk, the podcast of the UW Cinematheque. This is Mike King. I'm a programmer here. On Saturday, October 23rd, the Cinematheque will present A Dim Valley, the newest film by director Brandon Colvin, who will be joining us in person for the screening. Originally scheduled to play our 2020 Wisconsin Film Festival, this dreamlike indie unfolds deep in the Appalachian wilderness, where a pair of ecology grad students are collecting flora and fauna samples and getting high, anything to avoid spending more time in the cramped cabin with their grouchy, hard-drinking advisor. Out in the forest, they encounter a trio of nymph-like backpackers who lure the men into a trance-like state of magical awakening and desire. In advance of his visit to the Cinematheque, this podcast features the writer, producer, and director of A Dim Valley, Brandon Colvin. He is currently an assistant professor at the University of Alabama and earned his PhD here at the Communication Arts Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His previous two features, Frames and Sabbatical, played the Wisconsin Film Festival in 2012 and 2015. From 2014 through 2018, Colvin ran the Microwave Screening Series, showcasing independent cinema here in Madison. A Dim Valley had its theatrical premiere in July at the Quad Cinema in New York. Here's my conversation with director Brandon Colvin. Brandon Colvin, welcome to Cinema Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, A Dim Valley gives us a sort of mystical vision of eastern Kentucky. This is not an area we often see depicted in film, much less in this kind of otherworldly way. It's also where you grew up. So I'm wondering what led you to sort of go back home for this particular film and evoke it in this unusual way. Yeah, that that the decision to do that kind of came in stages in the creative process. I initially just wanted to do something that was kind of funny and I was spitballing ideas on the set of my second movie with one of the actors, Robert Longstreet. And I also had a loose idea that I wanted to do something where I was from. And so we kind of concocted this idea of uh, like a comedy about some scientists doing some things. And I just kind of marinated on that idea for a really long time. And eventually, that idea morphed and changed as I um, allowed myself to kind of become open to possibilities that were outside of that original idea or outside of the limits of that original idea. And every time I would get a bit of an image or a story point that felt like it was embracing things that were sort of supernatural, it kind of felt like I, it was taking me closer to like the emotional core that I wanted to get to that it was like allowing me to arrive at that place faster and so to me it was like okay this is like I need to trust that and just go with it and so in that process I also started thinking a lot more deeply about what kind of movie I wanted to make about the place that I was from and I would say like most people from Eastern Kentucky, the relationship can be a little complicated with it because it's like a place that has all of this sort of environmental tragedy and like this history of poverty and all of these kinds of associations with it. And it can be really difficult to tell a story about that place without being like stuck under the thumb 
of having to address all of that. And so to me, it was like, can I make a film about this place that sort of addresses those things by, not by making a film about those things, but by posing this alternative world or this alternative way of being in this place that is also happening in parallel or maybe is just happening in your interiority while I'm in that place. Like I think of Kentucky as a place that is very spiritually comforting to me in a lot of ways because I'm so used to it. And I think approaching the place from that perspective helped me figure out like what I could say about it and what I could investigate about it in a film that no one else really would or has at this point yet. Um, and so that also, much like the supernatural stuff, felt like it was getting me to a place where I could really throw my heart and soul into the project in a certain way. Yeah, it's one of the things that I really value about the Dim Valley. I think partially, you know, maybe as you imply, we've been conditioned by other films set in areas like this to expect something maybe more realist with kind of a more overt agenda. But you're a filmmaker, especially with this film, who's unafraid to embrace ambiguity in your storytelling. Um, you know, you have these characters in particular who are the forest spirits whose existence and motivations, you could say, lie beyond human comprehension. And a lot of filmmakers, I think, would get bogged down in trying to explain it all away or qualify it, but you allow it to remain enigmatic. And you show that these sort of elements, supernatural elements, don't necessarily have to make explicit, literal sense to be effective. And in fact, maybe they're more effective if they don't add up quite so comfortably. Yeah. So could you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Sure. I mean, I think there's a really common misconception, I think, about how ambiguity works in storytelling that usually frames it in terms of frustration, that it's about like frustrating the audience in a certain way. And I think that's kind of a juvenile perspective to have, like, um, because just as a creative person, like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't do things with ambiguity to annoy people. I don't do things with ambiguity to make it hard to understand the story. It's more about changing the path of understanding. Like, to me, ambiguity doesn't necessarily mean that there's no clarity to what is going on. But it means to get at that clarity, you're kind of encouraged to take a different route than you normally would. And I think in a lot of cases, the thing that's appealing to me about ambiguity is to arrive at clarity through ambiguity. You need to like use your intuition more as a viewer and use your kind of emotional sensitivity. Like I often find that when, especially about a dim valley, when I talk to people about it and they're confused, they're confused about like superficial details, but they actually fully understood everything I was trying to get them to feel and experience in the story. Like they were there the whole time, but they were there intuitively and in the sense that they're trying to pick up on little details and little nuances of things and they're all getting at the right point. And I think that different journey that ambiguity encourages you to take towards getting to that understanding of the story is a lot more fun for me and is a lot more rewarding for me because 
as a viewer, I mean, so as a filmmaker as well, but as a viewer, even when I'm thinking about like how to make my own film interesting to me, it's more interesting if to understand what's going on, I really needed to pay attention to like this actor's reaction to this line. Like that makes the moment by moment experience of watching thrilling in a certain way to me. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would disagree, but um, I think the frustration part of it is always disappointing. Like I wish I could, it's, it's the one thing that when people are watching my stuff and I ever have to do an intro, the thing that I always say in an intro is just like, try to let it happen, you know, like some, some version of that, because I think it helps take the air out of that frustration. Like if, if I tell you, don't expect to understand everything immediately, then when you don't understand everything immediately, you're less frustrated. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm kind of rambling there, but I think that's, I think that that ambiguity question is, it's a really interesting question. Well, what I, one of the things that I like of what you're saying about ambiguity versus clarity is that um, your filmmaking technique, you know, as, as ambiguous as elements of the story may be, your filmmaking technique is formally very precise. You know, you developed a style that's pretty pared down and elemental. Maybe it's relaxed a little bit with this film, but it's still, you know, you can tell it's mapped out, locked in. And in particular, you know, you found a way to communicate character through sort of subtle gestures and edit rather than dialogue. So I'm just interested in how the formal precision of what you're doing intersects with the mysteries of the story. Hmm. I think I feel an urge to be precise because what I'm trying to achieve is delicate. And I don't think that's good or bad. Like there's, there's many kinds of art and films and music that I like that is completely indelicate and is very like in your face really kind of dictates how the person experiencing the art is going to respond to it. Um, but the emotions and things I'm trying to express are things that I feel like I really have to calibrate very carefully. And so that relationship between form and ambiguity is definitely part of that calibration. So to me, like things can, it's, it's like a souffle or something where like the very, the wrong amount of time can totally like take the air out of everything. Like the cut, a cut that's a second too long or a framing that feels off, like to me is gonna make things crumble in a certain way. Break the spell. Yeah, it's gonna break the spell. And, um, you know, it makes it, so that's in terms of just like uh, successfully achieving what I'm setting out to achieve, that's a really delicate balance. And then the other thing about making something that's relatively delicate is that if the viewer is not in the position where they're really lining up with the film, then like, it's just not going to work. So I think it's, it's something that I just have to accept about the stuff that I want to make is that when it hits with the viewer, like when it connects, it really connects. And when it doesn't, 
it's so delicate that it can be hard to kind of press through initial resistance or like even if you're just in the ba the wrong mood or whatever. Um, my films are not assertive enough to kind of override those things. And so I'm really counting on just this connection between this thing I'm trying to make that it feels like I really have to work hard to get it to stay together. Um, partially because it's really about crafting like an emotional path. Like my films are very rarely about like what's going to happen next. Like that's not, I mean, any, any film is about that, but it's not really like the driving rhythm of how For things sure. are set up. Um, but yeah, so it's always about trying to get that to work. And for me to get that to work, I have to be really specific stylistically. I'm sure other filmmakers would look at it and be like, what are you talking about? You don't have to do that. But to me, that's what I have to do. And it's the only way I, I know how to do it that would make sense to me. And then also, uh, when I make my movies, we have the smallest amount of money humanly possible to make them. And having things locked in means that we can actually do what we need to do with the resources that we have and the time that we have. Um, that's like a convenient thing where the way I, I want to make stuff lines up with what makes it practically feasible. I'm sure if the way I made films didn't line up that way, I would figure out another way around it. But those things are definitely complementary, and I think that if I was someone who discovered style on set, I mean, you always, to a certain extent, are discovering performance on set, but if I was discovering other stuff, it would take so much longer to actually do it, which would be a big problem. <laughs> right. Um, I want to talk for a bit about the sexuality in the film. Um, you got a lot of skin on display. You have all these young actors in their underwear for long stretches. There seems to be this pervasive sexual charge between pretty much every character. Several scenes feel like they're one move away from breaking out into like a straight up orgy. Yet the film itself is pretty chaste. You know, the most action you get is a fairly tentative single kiss. Um, so it has this strange atmosphere where it's like almost kind of dirty, but in fact, there's a purity and almost like innocence to the whole endeavor. Could you talk a bit about this strange kind of tension that you've created? Yeah, I mean, I p part of it is that I want the viewer to be in the same position as the characters as they're moving through the story. And I think specifically with Ian, who's kind of the viewer surrogate. And part of the story is like about the characters discovering things about themselves and their own sexuality and their own desires that they may or may not be fully aware of or even fully um, open about with other people. And so I think that starting from that perspective where you want it to feel like anything can happen, like for the characters, like anything can happen, I think it has to feel the same way for the viewer. So like I wanted scenes where it feels like anything could turn into a sex scene, but then it turns into a game of Scrabble or it turns into 
some heartfelt moment or maybe it does actually turn romantic but i think so much of it is telling a story about characters who become open to human connection in many different ways and allowing that human connection to unfold in a way that's not super prescribed so that it can kind of take the form it's going to take based on the dynamics between the characters, based on what the characters need at particular times. And so I'd never wanted the viewer to clear, to be able to anticipate as those things are winding up, like exactly where it's going to go. Um, I hope that is successful, but, um, but I think that's part of it is just about the character staying open and trying to keep the viewer open as well so that you're moving at the same speed as the characters and not getting ahead of them. Because I think for this story in particular, if the audience were ahead of the characters, then the the way emotions and realizations and things get meted out in the story like wouldn't have the same effect. Well, as you, you know, it is more open-ended and human-oriented for the younger characters in the film in a way that I think is really refreshing in independent cinema. But it seems to be a more fraught issue for the character of Dr. Rumble, who's another generation, you know, Um, and he and his ex, they also speak in franker terms, a little coarser than the younger characters. Can you talk about the discrepancy between the generations in the film? Yeah, it was something that... um was really important to me because I feel like, I mean, I'm obviously approximately the generation of the younger characters. And I think growing up, something that was really surprising to me was realizing how many people my parents' age were gay, but were not out. Or it was like this kind of open secret where everyone knew it, but no one could admit it. Or like, you would learn in high school, like, this teacher is actually a lesbian. And it was like this whole this whole revelatory thing of, like, things are a lot more complicated than you think. And so I think for that generation of people and previous generations as well, it feels like there's this really tragic sense of timing where, although things are very far from perfect they're more open than they were when those people were growing up and entering their adolescence and kind of coming to terms with their sexuality. And so part of telling the story, I think, was um, I wanted to acknowledge, like, the pain and loss that those kinds of, like, people from that generation felt because they weren't able to be themselves or engage with that part of their life as fully as they would want to. Um, And I think there's a lot of trauma and pain that can harden people in those situations. And as much as the younger characters are kind of exploring themselves and being open and finding new connections, I think the thing with um, Dr. Rumble is about like renewing connection like renewing an ability to connect that had maybe frayed or had maybe gone away and reopening him back up in a certain way and giving him some kind of like deliverance 
Um, and there's something about that that, uh, like this idea that there is some kind of benevolent force. I mean, it's like a, a conventional religious idea that when you're going through pain, the idea is that you put some kind of faith or hope or whatever in some benevolent force that's going to help heal that or take care of that. And um, I don't know if I necessarily believe that that is true, but um, it's something that I find incredibly emotional to consider. So I think having a character in pain and contextualizing the kind of nature of the intervention of the supernatural beings as ultimately being about kind of rewarding the faith of this character who's like dedicated himself to the natural world and has been isolated for so long from human connection in a meaningful way. Um, that's just, uh, you know, that gets me in the feels, as they say. Yeah, same here. It's a moving part of the film for sure. Um, so casting is crucial in a film like this, and you've really assembled an amazing group of actors for the five younger roles. They're all fascinating to watch on screen, which is really essential for a film that is as quiet as yours can be, where nobody has like tons of lines, and then instead they have to create distinctive presences with their physicality. How did you put this group of young performers together? Well, um, Zach, I had written that part for. And one reason why I had him in mind when I was writing is Zach acts in a lot of his own films. And in those films, he's often improvising with other actors on screen. And because of that, he does a lot of really attentive focus listening and observing of what other characters are doing when he was acting which is really how I wanted Ian to work as like someone you could identify with and feel for but who really like his main role is to be an observer like he's he's watching he's listening and then processing those things in terms of like how they're making him feel and making him adjust to different environments then for the other characters, it was really about trying to find actors who could suit like the vibe that character needed to bring. Um, in terms of finding them, I mostly just watched or had already seen shorts and other films that those actors had been in and had kind of seen flashes like sometimes they're not doing anything that's really close to what they're doing in the movie but you can just like tell i don't know how you can exactly tell but you can i can tell when someone can is going to be able to do what i need them to do which is like can you look at someone in a way that is compelling yeah like i think to me if you can't do that it's going to be difficult to cast you in one of my movies because you really are going to have to be able to act without dialogue a lot. So people who seem alive and um, dynamic in front of the camera, even when they aren't talking and especially when they're doing small stuff, I think is part of it. But then it's also just, you know, stuff like people's voices is really important. And, um, thinking about how different voices are going to work, 
you know, gets very complex, I guess, when like getting to that fine grain level of detail. But um, a lot of it is just looking for people who seem compelling, hoping that when I reach out to them, they're going to be interested in it. And in this case, you know, those actors were all people who I was excited to work with and who were interested in participating. Um, Some of them were easier to find than others, but I think once approached, they were all pretty enthusiastic about doing it. And I guess to me, it's like if I find someone who I think is going to work and they really want to do it, then most of the hard work is over because I believe we're going to be able to figure it out if those things are true. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just about finding the individuals, it's the ensemble that, as the film goes along, has a chemistry that creates this really inviting kind of vibe at times. You feel like you just want to hang out with them in some of these scenes. Yeah, that's always, or if you have time to have people rehearse together, that can be a little less mysterious, but I don't really have that time. And so... That part is always, you never know exactly how it's going to pan out. But I think the fact that it's a small movie and we were all kind of doing everything together and we were hanging out together off set and doing those things meant that people were very comfortable with each other. And then um, uh, Rosalie and Feathers and Rachel, had all they were all living in New York and they met up a couple of times in advance of the shoot to just hang out which is great. Mm -hmm. And then Zach and Whitmer are both kind of skateboardery, chill guys with similar vibes. So they really got along. So I think everyone was able to get along. I think another really important thing about Zach and Whitmer is they are both filmmakers behind the camera as well as actors in front of the camera. And I think when you have a talented actor who's also been behind the camera, there's like a sense of awareness of themselves and their like part in the filmmaking process that makes them really easy to work with. So like um, that helped and I think it helped that they were really on the same page in a lot of ways. But some of that stuff is it's totally luck because mm-hmm. it's it's difficult to anticipate how much people are going to get along. Um, but everyone kind of got along. This is your second movie with Robert Longstreet. And he's really great in both of them. You Great enough that you kind of wish he had more opportunities to flex his craft, like the ones that you give him. Uh, in this film in particular, you have he has a monologue that's kind of a showcase for what he can do as a performer. Uh, can you talk a bit about your collaboration with him? Yeah, well, Robert is the other person in the film who the, his role was really written for him. And... Um, I mean, if I contributed to what he's doing at all, it's that I wrote something in his voice the whole time, like I was writing it with him in my head. And I think Robert and I connect in a way that, um, like Robert is interesting because he's both an extreme extrovert and like a very introverted, sensitive person at the same time. And I'm sure that he has lots of friends who are very connected to the extroverted part of him but I think he and I really connect on the introverted level. And so there's a lot of Robert's vulnerability and sensitivity I encounter just from knowing him and things that I know about him and things we talk about. And um, I find that part of him like incredibly 
beautiful and it's very accessible to him like he feels very deeply about the things that he feels and so um being able to write the part for him i felt like i could put him in a good situation to access the emotions that i know would be meaningful to him as a person and i think anytime you can shrink the gap between the actor and the role you're really helping the actor like give more of themselves to the role and i think um that scene in particular the monologue uh i really thought like well it's based on a a recurring dream that i used to have as a kid so like the dream was very clear i knew exactly what to say and then part of it was about writing it in a way that i thought would help get robert to the place that he needed to get and the first take that he did it he choked up at like the line that I wrote for him to choke up on. And I didn't know if he would or not, and he did. And I was like, okay. I wrote it the way he would read it. You know, like I wrote it the way he would feel it. Um, and so, I mean, but when he was doing that scene, it was like, I've never been in a situation where such a hush fell over the set. Like, he would do it, and we would call cut, and, like, no one would move. Because, it like, you could feel how, how, like, vulnerable he was being and how much emotion he was bringing to it. And so it was, like, the resets between those takes were, like, the quietest resets you could possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. It was, like, church. Like, it was, like, you could hear every person's breath and every creak of the floorboard because no one wanted to like disrupt the zone he was in, but he was in the zone. Um, and I think Robert is really, he's extremely versatile. He can do a lot of stuff. I think not that many people because they don't know Robert or they're not counting on him to carry a lot of weight in their projects. I don't think that many people write for him in a way that helps him in the same way uh he's worked with mike flanagan a lot which like um i saw midnight mass and i didn't like it that much but i thought uh mike flanagan wrote that part for robert really well the part of the like alcoholic you know guy with the dog um and i was like okay that's someone who's worked with robert and like knows what he can do and really like gave him stuff that he could work with in a way that's like just setting him up to crush it and i thought he crushed it in midnight mass he was amazing and he did something in that show where it's like the bad things that happened to him and his dog is really like this huge emotional turning point in the show where you're like oh my god and I think that's like what Robert can do is he really is can can make himself this open wound in a way that's just like amazing. Fantastic. Um, when you were getting your PhD here at UW Madison, your dissertation was on acting in American micro budget cinema. And since we're talking about this, I'm curious if there were any lessons or connections from doing this research on working with actors that you've been able to apply to your own filmmaking in a dim valley? It's hard to think of specific 
lessons. I think paying attention at the level I was paying attention where for some of the analysis I was like counting how many times people were blinking and stuff. Whoa. Like <laughs> that's some UW stuff there, man. Yeah, that's that's like a lot of precise detail of observing. It definitely helped me as an analyst of performance. But I think there is still a separation. I'm not sure exactly what like the filtering process is, but I think there's a separation between analyst and maker where as an artist, I can only do stuff the way that I do it. And so as much as I'm aware of what other people are doing, um, it doesn't really, it's hard for it to change my instinct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that feels formed in a certain way and in ways that are, it's a blend of conscious and unconscious decision-making and preferences where it did definitely help me is as a teacher. I think like teaching filmmaking to students and teaching acting to students, writing that dissertation, because I because there's a much tighter relationship, I think, between analysis and instruction, that that really made a difference and helped me be able to articulate things a little bit more precisely and give people feedback that was like clearer and was informed by some of these more top level ideas that came from analysis. Um, but yeah, I don't know how much it, if it actually affected the way that I direct actors. And in a lot of ways, when I ask, when I was asking that question about how people direct actors, it's more about me trying to understand how I do it because it feels, um, I think there are creative decisions people make and creative tendencies they make that you feel not totally responsible for, where it's just like, that's what happens. Right. And so a lot of that project was just trying to understand understand what I'm doing in relation to other people, rather than like trying to see what they do so I can import it into what I'm doing. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so our screening of A Dim Valley has been a long time coming. We originally scheduled to show it a year and a half ago at our 2020 Wisconsin Film Festival. And, you know, it's difficult for independent filmmakers like you to get your work out there, even in the best of times. Can you talk a bit about this film's long journey into the world? Yeah. Um, I mean, the journey ultimately ended in a place that was pretty good, which is we were able to get distribution, which... If there are functions of film festivals that you could delineate, like one of them is just to show it to other people and meet them and actually connect with an audience for your work. Mm -hmm. And then the other is to get people to pay attention to you so that you can actually get distribution of some kind if you don't already have it. So um, we kind of went one for two because we weren't able to actually see people and interact with them in a, in a fundamental way. There were virtual screenings and virtual Q&As, but, um, you know, it's not the same. It's not that it's right. bad. It's just not the same. No, and I so, agree. That's why I wanted to hold on to it until we could show it in person. Yeah. I mean, 
I think still for me as an artist, I'm not the most commercially minded filmmaker. Like I'm not making films to, to enter into the industry and direct like episodes of television or something. Right. I'm really making them because I, I want to make something and like share it with people because you know, it's meaningful to me and maybe it'll be meaningful to other people. And so that part of the film festival stuff I really value. So it was, it was a big bummer to miss out on that because that is like, it sounds really stupid, but literally if like four people say, I saw your movie, I loved it, and I've been thinking about it for weeks or months, then it's like, okay, well, that's good enough reason to uh, absolutely spend one billion hours making another film. (laughs) And so that, like, fuel and encouragement that comes from just sharing your work with someone and having it mean something to them, that's something that I missed out on. Uh, It came in other ways, but it wasn't the same. Um, and then eventually we were able to get, um, a distribution deal, which has been really great. And we actually got our first public screenings by releasing it theatrically this summer during that beautiful window before the resurgence of the, um, of the, what is it called? Delta variant. Um, (laughs) Uh, yeah, so there was that brief time where we did get to show it to some audiences in person. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was like the the feedback and just like interfacing with people in those situations was so wonderful. And it felt like closure in a certain way was starting to happen that we didn't actually get because we weren't really showing it to audiences in a conventional way. So I am really excited about the Cinematech screening because it's like going back to Madison um, with a lot of people I know and love and being able to show the film in person, I think is very exciting, especially as someone who spent a lot of time showing things to people in Madison. It's like, there's, there's something about showing independent films to audiences in Madison that will always be like a a vibrant part of what I imagine the, the constellations of cinema involve. Well, I'm very excited for the screening as well. Um, talking about um, getting your film out into the world makes me think about, you know, it can lead to all kinds of unexpected possibilities. And it reminds me of a truly strange experience you had with your first film, Frames, um, which maybe we can end with this, but it had a sort of unexpected second life on the other side of the planet. I wonder if you would be uh, up for telling that crazy story? Sure, of course. Um so my first film frames uh, that I made when I was, it was after my first year of graduate school at UW-Madison. Right, we um, showed it at the Film Fest maybe 2012? Yeah, it's played, played there, played at a couple of other festivals, and um, then I put it online through NoBudge, which is a great website, which is now like huge, but at the time it was pretty early on in the, the existence of NoBudge, and NoBudge helped get it kind of a life on the internet and the film was on youtube and i think because it had nudity in it it like surged in viewership numbers on youtube now it's at like six million or something whoa i know (laughs) but um so people in all 
parts of the world were like watching this movie, whether however the algorithm was suggesting it to them, they were watching it. And I got a Facebook message one day from someone and they were like, hey, um, could I remake your movie frames? <laughs> and I was like, sure. Whatever. That must have I felt mean, really surreal. Very surreal. Um, well, especially because they said they were going to remake it into a short film. And I was like, weird. And this person was from India, mm-hmm. which I think short film in India means something very different than what we think. Because like Bollywood movie. Yeah, it means not three hours. Exactly. Um, and so uh, I was like, sure, whatever. And then like a month later, he posted the movie or sent me the movie. <laughs> and I was like, wait. So what I eventually figured out is that he had probably already remade it and then someone made him feel really nervous that I was going to sue him or something. So they like made him ask for permission, but it was already done. Um, And so there are some things that are shot for shot, like extremely close. And then there are some like creative choices that are totally outside of what the film was doing at all. Uh, like they're kind of music interludes and a lot of I mean the film has like some dark sexual content in it that's like pretty much totally taken out of the remake and that film also has um, an ambiguity at the core of it and when they remade it they literally like shot so like there's this whole stuff where a character is shooting something with a camera from a particular angle and part of the angle restricts what he's able to see but to help with clarifying the ambiguity they like shot the scene from the angle that revealed everything that was happening and like played that at the end so that like you see what actually happened instead of it kind of remaining a, a product of a character's misinterpretation that causes this big problem. Um, so yeah, so it was a very, I mean, it's one of those things that's so strange that it happened and feels like, why would this, I can't believe that that happened. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a badge of honor, I think, to have made a little film that not many people cared about, but that someone in India cared about enough to remake in like the wildest adaptation <laughs> like i just yeah it's very i couldn't strange. agree more about it being a badge of honor i think it's totally <laughs> wild and it you know even if it's not you know it doesn't always uh agree with what you were intending it just feels to me like oh it's better sign that of it possibility yeah you know like like you never know what could happen with these movies that you make the things that that are not like the original are the most interesting things about it that's the part that's completely fascinating to me <laughs> all right thanks so much for doing this brandon yeah for sure thanks for having me